I'm having a good time. You are? Yeah. I can tell. And we are rolling Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Today's guest is Peter Phillips. Peter is a husband, father, surfer, and leading educator at the sustainability-focused and internationally recognised Green School Bali. Born and raised in Australia, Peter finds his spiritual home in Sanua, Bali, the place his mother and extended Balinese family are from, and where he now lives with his wife Mel and their two children, Koa and Naya. Peter graduated from, the uni- from university with a Bachelor of Education and since graduating has actively sought progressive approaches to education. His experience in education is diverse, teaching in the Australian public system, Steiner schools and currently an international school which has students from literally every part of the globe. In getting to know Peter, it became very obvious to me early on that this is someone who possesses innate educational leadership qualities. His academic prowess, strong ability to communicate with people on a variety of levels, and his personal passion to progress in all that he does provides inspiration to his family, friends, colleagues, local community, but most importantly, the students that he teaches. Combined with an authentic cultural sensitivity and empathy, it fills me with optimism and hope that someone like Peter is on an educational leadership trajectory. Hence, his recent appointment as teacher representative to the board of directors at the Green School in Bali. Today, Peter is with me to share his journey, experiences, challenges, and hopes for the future. Peter Phillips, welcome. Shannon, so happy to be here. Dude, I'm so glad to have you. So f- finally sitting down with you, it's epic. Mate, you're, really you're, a hard man to, you're a hard man to tie down. You are. Well, it's not the time. It's the time that's... Given to us, we have to abide by, so. Would you class yourself as a busy man? Uh, well, you're doing business, busyness, you can get caught up in it, but if you're not in it, you're not in it. Right. So I want to be busy. You, you like being busy? I like being busy. If it's the right kind of busy. If it's the right kind of busy, <laughs> of course. Yeah, and it's it's good. Like, um, can you maybe uh, just... Describe to describe to us right now where we're sitting. So, we traversed over the bridge into the jungle, looking through the bamboo, sitting with a big palm tree next to me. And as I look up, there's a couple of fans. We're in an enclosed area. There is a cat right here that wants to make itself known. But just looking up a beautiful bamboo architecture, looking out onto green palm trees in the wind it's an epic place to be you have to remind yourself how amazing it is right yeah it is and um we are literally uh, i've actually recorded at this location a few times and we're literally sitting in the bali jungle in sabang kaja and um you know it's in a ravine and uh yeah like you said surrounded by palm trees and coconut trees and all sorts of other wildlife, including feral cats that just want to sit on my recorder and just be part of it, which is, cool. <laughs> which is cool by me, man. Yeah, bro. So give us, give us an update. Like, what's the, last, what's the last month of your life been like? It's been pretty amazing. Why? So many ways. So the last month has literally been preparing, organising. We went back to Oz, Central Coast of Oz, to see family 
reconnect with friends, hang out, but also to get married. This was the big one. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> and how you feel? So good. Dude, so good. Mate, congratulations. Thanks, man. It feels so good. Like I keep on saying to Mel, my partner, so do you feel different? And what'd she say? Initially, she was like, what do you mean, no? And I was like, I do. So what do you mean? I said, yeah, love it. I never thought I would. So were you, were you guys together for a while prior, prior to uh, getting married? Yeah, I think we've, I can't tell you, I'm not good with dates. I'm not good with time periods, but Give it was a, a significant, maybe it was like seven years. Yeah. Seven years. So I think we were together about two years before we had our first little boy, Koa. And his arrival was really the start of our true relationship, I think. Yeah. A pretty amazing arrival. Oh, dude. Koa. Coming nine weeks early. Nine? Oh, so he was a premature baby. Premature baby. Oh, my God, dude. Yeah. First child. I didn't know it was nine weeks. Nine weeks. Like, that's, that's intense. It was intense. So, like, did he have to do the whole humidity crib, yeah. hospital intensive care stuff? Yep. All of that. No way. All of that. It was incredible. Wow. And, um... So, obviously, he recovered because he's a, a really healthy, beautiful little kid. Oh, I mean, you've seen him. He's just he's a ball just a of legend. love and energy, yeah. I think koa means fish, doesn't it? Well, koa, we discovered, this was like a couple of, or well, maybe like a couple of minutes before going into the operating theatre, right? Deciding what his name would be and what he needs. Because I'm a big believer of name meanings, etymology of things. So, we're looking up, you know, in strength, he needs strength. He's going to need that for a long time. And so we stumbled across koa, which initially we thought was just a Hawaiian name. So it's also a type of tree, but also means to have strength or to be a warrior, yeah? And then from then discovered it's actually has the same meaning. So I've been told it has the same meaning in Maori culture, the same meaning in indigenous Australian culture. So it's an indigenous name, has the same meaning across. And it's not necessarily specific to the Pacific Islands. No. No I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. Because I, I did hear it and, and I actually thought, okay, Hawaiian, it's, it's a good Yeah, this is what we great. initially thought and then discovered soon after that it's actually an indigenous yeah. name. So you got married, man, you did it. And you said you feel different. Yeah, I feel so different. that's pretty intense considering you were together seven years. It's true, huh? Like maybe you could try and describe what is making you feel different. Yeah. Because I, I have my own experiences but yeah. I'd like to hear what you think. Yeah. So the reason why I brought up Cole was because that was the moment when I realised how big your heart can get and how much love you can actually have. Because I looked at Mel in a totally different way. When he arrived, I was like, oh, my heart was just like, from me to your way. And then it was a similar feeling of actually having the circle of love and doing that with our friends and family and, and making it official or however you want to say that, of this deeper appreciation of... Who we are as one, you know? Yeah. I like that you mentioned that because I really do feel like when you get married, it's obviously special between you and your partner, but you're also gifting the experience to your loved ones. Mm. And even in, in your case, because you've had children prior, yep. it's like you're gifting them that, that experience. they got to share it with you. Because mm. my daughter often asks about it now. She's getting to that age where she's curious. Like yep. she can't believe that we had a life before her, you know? She looks at old photos. She's mm. like, where was I? Was I in mummy's belly? Yeah. Like, nah, like we hadn't even thought of you yet. <laughs> no, so, no. but now your, your children have actually experienced that with you. So it's mm. so good, man. Yeah, to have them like weaving in and out of us around the, like, because we had this big circle wedding 
and everything that we did was based upon like how how are we gifting people that something else it's not just another wedding or it's not to downplay anyone else but how are we really making it authentically us yeah and it was a big thing about getting everyone together and having us symbolically offer something to them you know because mum made this you know chanang the offering she went out into like the bush and found all these palm trees and the ones that st- stand up right in the middle that haven't opened up yet and cut those and then separated all those and meticulously made like 90 of those for all of our guests and hand them out. And it's just a gesture of all of these things to bring a, a different level of, well, authentically us, right? And you had this in Australia? In Australia, yep, nice. on a massive 40-degree day. Our initial plans were scrapped because of all the fires that are happening over there and the fire so what, warnings. what were your initial plans? Well, we wanted to go up to a place called King Cumber Mountain, which is um, in the National Park. Huge, big, rocky outcrops. And that's, outcrops. N- that's north of Sydney. North of Sydney. And it's got a nice mud brick hut up there. It was just super cash. And all of our friends were basically going to bring Turkish rugs and like furniture and stuff and just make it a cruisy vibe. And that didn't happen there. But basically the same thing happened somewhere else. So really it didn't matter where. Yeah. Which is a really cool thing. Huh? Yeah. And you realise that. Yeah. <laughs> realise that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was us. Yeah. That's so cool. And that's what I, I learned on my wedding day. It doesn't really matter about where it is or even like, I mean, there's always this, always this talk about the engagement ring you give someone and the rings and it didn't even matter what the ring was. It mm. was just some symbol of, of, the, of the bond you create, you know, so we... So I was really hung up on those finer details because it had to be perfect and stuff. But yep. I realised afterwards that it was always going to be perfect if the willingness was there and the love was there. Mm. That, was, that sounds pretty sensitive, new age guy, oh, doesn't it? Yeah, such snags. <laughs> it's good, man. I love it. <laughs> and now I'm already thinking like, you know, because obviously you're on this high and you're going along. But how do you maintain this or how do you remember a sense of this when it gets slow again or when it... I mean, obviously, time, are you feeling? You know? Are you and your wife feeling like super connected at the moment? I think so. Yeah. Okay. But when the honeymoon's over, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do you both go? You know what? Remember that? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe that's all it needs to be. Maybe. Yeah. So you had it in um, in Australia. Yeah. Uh, so you were born in Australia. Mm. Which part? Born in Manly, seaside suburb of of Sydney. I don't have a lot of childhood memories. Like I don't really remember growing up there. I only remember it through photos, you know, mm. and being there for maybe about four to six years of our lives. Yeah. Coming over to Bali for a little bit of time. I remember looking back on um, home videos that Dad had kind of created and seeing myself and my older brother like walking through with frangipanis in our ears and, <laughs> you know, the Bali life back then. No way. And then coming back and being, we went up to Port Douglas up in Queensland Mum and Dad working up in a big Sheraton Mirage Hotel resort up there, coming back down to the coast and been there ever since. Central coast? Central coast. Beach town? Beach town, beautiful place. What was your childhood like there? Interesting. Why? Well, coming into a school when you're in year three, this, these are when the first real memories come into, about eight, nine years old. Yeah. Pretty monoculture society. Describe monoculture society in Australia. What, so that, I think what does that was, look like explicitly? Well, personally, it was myself, my brother, and I remember being there being a Maori family, and that's all I remember as the cultured side. Of course, like back then, there was going to be others as well, but this is this is my memories of it, and just kind of forging those connections with the Maori 
the Maori guys and just realizing there is a little bit of difference in who we are to everyone else. To everyone else. What was, what was the? What is that difference? What is that? What, what do you? What did you think that difference was at the time? Purely a physical difference. And that is. And that is skin color. Okay. And that is skin color. That's what it was. I remember having this significant like. My brother and I would walk home and there was this family who lived up the road, right? And they were pretty rough. But there was these twins. And I just remember them just hurling abuse, like severe racial abuse every afternoon. Who what? At myself and my brother. And I remember my brother being like just this absolute rock, right? Doesn't say much. And I remember a stone getting thrown towards him. Like a big boulder, right? This is what I remember, you know, childhood <laughs> memories. And then the boulder just like crashed into his abdomen and broke over and everywhere. It must have been a bit of sandstone or something like that. But this is what it was like. Gotcha. But that is a small part of what it was like. But it was a significant part. And now look back at it, right? Because this was like realizing or questioning your identity. This, this was the beginning of like, oh, okay, I'm like this. Oh, I don't fit. This was the start of it. And that moment was sort of started it for you and went, yeah. And that was the moment where my brother went, you know what, no. And I was like, yeah, you go, darling. No, as in like, I'm not taking it. No, I'm going to stand. And can I assume that there would have been a lot of subtle, subtle things that occurred throughout your childhood in regards to that as well? Mm. What, do you, what, what are some of the subtle things that you start to pick up on? Um, well, to be honest, I think... I don't know how many subtle things they were. I don't really recall much about there being subtle things. I just remember feeling, like personally feeling different, right? Feeling and looking and you look with your eyes and your classmates and your whole school community and you know, right? These kids know. We don't give them enough opportunity to express how much they actually know. And sometimes, you know, perhaps we can argue the fact that we don't want to put them on the spot and we don't want to say... Uh, confront them, but it's also acknowledging things, you know, transparently and saying, you know what, yeah, we'll look at our local school kids here and giving them an opportunity to realise, yes, you are different. Yes, they are different, but we are one, you know. Mm. So I, I felt like the, the subtle thing that could have happened was to be have someone or a group to facilitate acknowledging those differences within the school or community yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I find it interesting that you said then you were drawn to the Maori family, you know, yeah. you sort of like, it's funny how us humans, we just, we just start seeking where we, uh, seeking our tribe and, and where we fit in and mm. who we identify with, we start to look for that. Yeah. Um, very, just innately, yeah. you know, I know I did it and I still do it, mm. you know. So you went to like Australian public schools mm. through your like early years and primary school. Yeah. In the Central Coast. In the Central Coast, Berkeley Vale Primary School. Berkeley Vale. Berkeley Vale. I've public sort of school. got a bit of an understanding of the area. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was pretty cool. What and was that like? What was the school like? I thought it was good. Teachers yeah. were good. Yeah. I don't have any really bad memories about teachers. Were you a good student? I think I was a good student. I was never really oh, I was a little bit academic up until high school. But it was more going towards, you know, I became, got voted in as the school captain and had the sporting captains and these things. And I remember, like, having to give speeches for those things, right, because you had to, like, 
present yourself and vow for your position or whatever. But I think I was actually away at the time when everything was happening, but somehow I got voted in. School captain? Yeah. Dude, there, I said it in, my, in your bio. You're just like natural born leader. I like listening. Do you? Love it. Really? Yeah. Like why? Because of exactly like this is the principle what I think of what you're doing, listening, sharing story, having a better understanding of someone else. How do you have a better understanding of someone else when you're dominating things? Have you always been curious by other people? Absolutely. Yep. You've just interested in people. Yep. People, Pete, Pete the people person. There we go. But I like, I feel like I'm super introverted too at the same time. Like I don't really cope well big social things and I feel a bit awkward. Mel knows I'm a bit awkward with things and don't really want to go and do things. But once I get out of that little comfort zone and find your tribe or whatever, yeah. I mean, that comes with age experience, I think. <laughs> I don't want to go into my shell too much, right? Because then you miss out on heaps. Yeah, man. And it's, it's good that you identify that in yourself, like areas for improvement or areas that you want to work on. Yeah. You know, that's right. Um, yeah, so like you're a decent student through your early years, primary school, and then you transitioned to high school mm-hmm. in the Central Coast. Yeah. And um, what were your high school days like? How would you describe them? Pretty loose. Loose as in like pretty fluid and, and trying to do the right thing and getting caught up in the wrong thing and and just that whole big social pressure of a little it's kind of it's this huge area the central coast but still like when you're in school it's so small right yeah. so being dominated by those louder characters and all of that sort of stuff but also kind of just finding a flow of things and I had some epic I still do have some epic friends from when I st- first started in primary school and hanging out with them and different friendships and being exposed to like a bigger world of of thinking and different subject areas and realising didn't really want to go the academic path and doing photography and like being stuck in the dark room and developing your own film and that sort of stuff really opened my eyes. <clears throat> so you were drawn to the like art subjects more than the other ones? Or? Yeah, I just, I disengaged pretty quick. I don't know what the, what the fact was behind that, but I just found more interesting ways to stimulate my mind and at school at school so i was never on the university trajectory yeah it was more like just experience social survival weren't motivated by grades no Mm. okay no i had to try too hard like i would have had this is what i think anyway (laughs) i think i would have had to try too hard i realized i realized pretty early that things weren't coming too naturally and my brother was always, you know, your brother, like your siblings are always your benchmarks. And he was always the example, right? Like he was super quick, super bright. Nothing was much of an effort. And we shared a room together. And I would have to be like, how is it so easy for you? <laughs> you don't understand. Yeah, right. But then also at the same time going like, okay, that's him, that's me. Okay. So I'm cool with that. Let's you were sharing a room through your teen years? Yep. We had, um, we grew up in, well, mum still is in the same house now in um, community housing. So it's a three-bedroom little place. And when we were that age, myself and my older brother Dharma would share a room together. And my two younger brothers, Asher and Mark, there's about a nine-year gap between myself and Asher, the third. And, um, yeah, so we shared a room all together, all separate. When you say community housing... Yeah. 
could you maybe for people that are not sure, mm. would you mind giving us a bit more of an understanding of what that what that looks like in Australia and what that is? Yeah. So I can't remember the what's the what's the slang term houses like housing commission. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, right? <laughs> housing commission houses. So uh, my understanding is that the government provides a percentage of houses, and I think you have to apply for them. Mm-hmm. And what you get is kind of at market or below market rent. And maintenance, kind of maintenance-free really, right? Mm-hmm. So anything that needs to happen in the house can, can happen. But it's not this luxurious picture of on-demand. It's very kind of basic level. And like if you go to our street now, mum's house is like... You look at it and everyone stops at the garden. What do you mean? Well, she's just like spent her life pretty much, her Australian life, just... Tending to the garden, making the house look beautiful. Landscaping. Landscaping. Like it looks so beautiful. People come over, like people stop when they walk their dogs and talk with her. And she's got like growing garden out the front, tomatoes and hands them out and flowers and, you know. And your mother's Balinese. Mum's Balinese. From which part of the island? From Sanur. 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 And uh, does she, and she identifies as as a Hindu? Not anymore. She, so she left. So she met dad over here. Come on, cat. Cat just tried to <laughs> eat my microphone. <laughs> she met dad. Well, dad was on this little sojourn, my understanding of the story. He was on this sojourn when he was 19. His father passed away and he went to Bali. Mum had a little art shop on the beach and she would sell all the little arts and crafts and things and, and that's where they met. On the beach in Sanua? On the beach in Sanua. Okay. At 19 years of age. Oh, what? That young? 19 years of age back in the day when... Yeah, there's so many complexities to that because of the family that we're from and everything. But basically, Dad kind of whisked her off and she was over here. She came back to Australia? Back to Australia at 19. Wow. So she moved away from her family and culture? Moved away from her family and culture. Perhaps. I mean, what were you doing when you were 19? Not. Moving away from my family or culture. <laughs> I know, right? And like yeah, only at this move. only at this age do you realise far out the courage and I don't know, the rebellious side of it. Like I go, Mum, you're a bit of a rebel, right? I love that. Because you know, I don't know. I don't look at my mum. When you if you were you know, hopefully you get to meet my mum, but she's not a rebel, she's a beautiful soul. Um, like how how did she adapt to the transition? Do you remember? I there's this like one through, through your early years or whenever. No, I don't. But I remember this one. There is one photo, one photo, and it's of this typical Australian backyard, right? A backyard barbecue, stubbies, short shorts, singlets, the old Tui's draft cans, like this real true blue Aussie picture. And there's mum in a kabaya, like traditional Balinese dress. Wow. Like this total polarity of cultures and like, I, I, I frequently think like, what was that like for her? Such a contrast. Such a contrast. And again, I go, wow, courageous. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. And um, she obviously must have liked it because she stayed for so long. But, yeah. Um, through, your, through your years living with her as a young person, would there be regular visits back to Bali or? 
There was, oh, I think there was only one time we came back when I was maybe about five, six years old. Mm-hmm. And then from then there was about a 10-year gap where mum never came back, where we never came back. 10 years. It's a long time. A long time. Because dad was in and out. Dad's always been an in and outer. Mm-hmm. More an outer than an inner. But when he was in, he was good. And when he was out, he was just gone. So for 10 years... From the age of six to 16, and mum for 10 years, she never went back. She never came back. Wow. So, would it be safe to say that, like, do you feel like you were, you grew up in a single parent family? Absolutely. Raised by your mother? Raised by mum. Yeah. Wow. Wow, man. So, she wasn't doing Hindu ceremonies at home and offerings and things like that? No. What happened early on was. Why do you think that's it? Like, why do you think she left that? Well, mum comes from a really, I guess, culturally, the family would come from a high caste family. And my mum, so a high caste family, Brahmin family, is where you have a, your descendants of priests. So obviously it's a um, patriarchal society. So my grandfather, he was a high caste priest. His, my great-great-grandfather was, and so on. So mum comes from this really core key to Balinese religion and philosophy and symbolism, this family which generally doesn't marry into middle caste or into low caste. And particularly in that time, now it's fluid, I think, but particularly in that time, it was really significant. So mum and dad had to go into hiding and they went into hiding for about a month while the cousins, while her brothers went and searched for them. They were full on. And on this, you can say, one, it's just this, this showing of the family, of their, their, their disapproval of it. But there was a lot of anger. That she married outside. That she married not only outside, but she married to a bully, to a foreigner. It's a little bit more common nowadays. But, yep. but back in the, would it be the 70s, late, 80s? Late, late, yeah, 70s? late 70s, early 80s. That wouldn't, yeah. have, wouldn't have been the done thing. No. So she's groundbreaking. And a rebel. Rebel. But she would come back to Australia. Or when she came over, I think, um, yeah, she came. She, actually, Dad left. Dad left Bali, left Mum. She was pregnant. Left Mum. Had to come back to Australia, I think, for more money and then went back. So there was also that period of time, was anyone going to come back and get me? <laughs> and what that would be like in Balinese culture to have a child and not have someone to take care of you would just be yeah. shame and all of those cultural things right so it was, eventually she came back but she would have nightmares every single night because she never Shh. left the family properly right so she would dream of the barong this mythical dragon in balinese religion and philosophy and she would dream of fire mm-hmm. and she would dream of the barong coming to get her every single night wake up in night terrors <gasps> Wow. So when she eventually did come back the next time, early on, um, she was told why. Because she never, we say pamit, pamit is like to leave properly. She never left her ancestors who reside in the family house, in the temples at home. She never left properly. Wow. Is Is she at peace with that now? I think she is, yeah. She's at peace with that now. Do you think she carried that that burden and that? That uh, sense of... Do you think she maybe carried some shame around that? I don't think so. I think she feels a sense of difference now. She feels a sense of difference because she doesn't identify with ceremony. She doesn't identify religiously. 
And I think obviously that brings a little bit of separation. So when she's here and the ceremony's on, she's not really actively engaged but willing to help and be a part of things but not to contribute and actively participate, which is totally fine. Yeah. So, um, okay, that's really interesting. I didn't – I wasn't aware of that, like – and, and how bold it would have been of her to, I guess, chase love. And um, it's pretty cool. Yeah. She was a rebel. She's a rebel. Are you a rebel? I think I can be. How? You don't – come on, Pete. Oh, Are you a rebel? Yeah. I'm just a rebel because I just want to do things. <laughs> I just want to have – I don't know. What do you mean? I just want to do things. I just want to say yes to things. And sometimes when you say yes to things, people don't like that. Yes to things – like what? Like things that are resonating with you and things that you feel in your heart or just are you a yes man? Well, I think I'm becoming a yes man. Things, so it's not necessarily about me. It's more about like the people around me wanting to do things and, and ask for, I don't know, approval or expressions of what you think because they obviously value your opinion, right? Gotcha. So it's like, yes, why not? Why don't you want to do that? If you want to do it, why don't you do it? So it's not necessarily about me. It's more about all these people coming and going like, oh, Puck Pete or Pete, what do you think about this or that? Oh, I've got this idea. Cool, yep. Has that started much more since you were appointed into your new role? I don't at, know. At, at the school? I don't think so. I think, well, Puck Soma, he calls me the, the jambatan, which is bridge, right? You can't deny, and this is what I'm realising, you can't deny my Balinese culture and my Australian culture. You can't deny that local to global. Mm-hmm. That's just a fact, right? <laughs> and like, that's, not, that's not this ego thing of saying, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's just factual. So when local people... Oh, my cat, come on. That cat. cat, oh, my man. God. <laughs> I'm not even a cat guy, Pete. No, well, I'm trying to be patient. Are you a cat person? Well, not really, but we have one. Okay, cool. Anyway, so going back to what you're saying, you're the bridge. But yeah, so I like being the bridge. I like, because I like to listen and I think people, I'm realising that and I'm realising that I can do it in a non-ego way and acknowledge that and say, yeah, I am a good listener. Mm. I do listen to people properly. Yeah. And I actively do that. It's not like. And having, um, oh my God, this cat is doing my head in. On that stuff um, Yeah And like I think Something that maybe Growing This is a bit of an observation From what you've been telling me Like mm. Growing up Effectively Maybe torn between cultures And feeling a little bit displaced In Within a culture Which I identify with um, Maybe now That's become your strength And you had to go through The trials and tribulations And uh, To now manifest that strength and mm. yeah so i don't know just an observation no, i agree i agree like and it, it definitely from where i'm sitting and observing you on a day-to-day basis i feel that um it is definitely like your place and it just fits so well and i haven't heard or seen anyone question it because it just feels so right mm. where that's not always the case, especially in very politically driven environments such as uh, schools. Mm. So there you go. There's an observation, bro. Thanks, mate. It's good to hear from the other side. (laughs) So, okay, 
you went through high school in the central yep. coast, the sunny coast, some of the stuff you like, like to get into, like what, what were your hobbies and interests like? Oh, I got into surfing pretty early through um, a good friend's family who would pick us up and take us to the beach all the time because we didn't really have the stages we didn't have a car or anything or dad wasn't around. So kind of just got under the wing of a few friends, families, and they would take us to the beach and got into booging first, bodyboarding first. I know. Nah, that's cool. All right. Dude. But it was out in the water and I loved it. I've, loved got, this, it. I've got this theory, surfers that started bodyboarding – Always better barrel riders. Oh. Yeah, I'm serious. Like I've got a few friends, they started off the, as bodyboarders and then changed to surfing later on. Yeah. And they're all just like really intuitive barrel riders. Yeah. There you go. Well, there you go. I can... Okay. Are you an intuitive barrel well, rider? when I'm in there, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Get me the hell out of here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's skating, hanging out. Skateboarding. Skateboarding. Loved it. Whole skate scene. That was it, really. That was it. We used to go skate the skate the schools we were near and do little road trips up and down the coast. And did you find a sense of identity through those activities, like oh, surfing and skateboarding? Yeah, you do, right? You do when you're at that age. You're just searching for that "who are you" kind yeah. of aspect of things. But also, just like, I mean, you find your crew as well, and you hang out. And that's what I remember. You I loved know, it. loved it. I guess that that area that you grew up in is. You know, those activities are so ingrained in the in the local culture there. So Yeah. Cool man. Yeah. So did you transition straight from high school to university? No, I had um I think the first thing I got into was I think there was a maybe like a four year gap of not going to university. So I, I went with a guy up the road and he had this irrigation business which he would do um, big jobs for like Parramatta City Council and we would just go out and to drive two and a half hours or he would make me drive his ute two and a half hours while he had a sleep or a coffee or something <laughs> <laughs> and just go and dig holes basically dig holes in big parks and things in front of people and get covered in mud and relay water pipes and and trenches trenches in the trenches man for four years well I did that for I think I did that for a year and from then, I, that was my means to get back to Bali as much as possible. So from what I did from high school, didn't really at that stage, I didn't really care. I just wanted to get money and every six months or whatever, go back to Bali and hang out with family because I realised that's where I really love and where I identify with. So did that for a year and then I think I worked like some retail jobs, some office works and selling some furniture and... And just doing the grind with that. and Just like doing whatever you had to do to get by. Well, just doing what you're doing because you're making money, really. And it was also to make money and to contribute to the household too. Like my brother, older brother moved out pretty early. I think maybe about 18 years old. And he was doing the, he was doing the work grind thing, but also kind of just decided to move on and, and maybe disconnect a little bit from that. So there was myself and my two younger brothers and, you know, bringing $500 home a week in cash and then giving a percentage to mum always felt good. Felt like you were helping support the family. Yeah. And I know my brother did that in many ways too. Do you feel like there was financial hardship in your life growing up? And how do you feel that may, may have affected you as an adult? Mm. The way I know there was financial hardship in the house was that I didn't know. And I only know now, I only know now 
I only really appreciate the sacrifices that mum had to make and how we never felt like we were without. But now I realise and I look back on things and I say, wow, this box came and it had like all canned supplies and stuff that came from Smith family and sponsor letters and, you know, when Christmas came along there were things already boxed up and there were those little moments of time. Like I said, I don't have this real vivid vivid memory of, of early childhood, which maybe there's a bit of biography work to go on there. But just never feeling like we went without. That's how I know. Man, your mother sounds like an amazing woman, man. Oh, you need to get her on here. She's so incredible. Yeah. Really. In the words of my brother, when at his wedding, he said, Mum, thanks, you taught us how to love. Nice, man. And I was like, that's it. That's gold. <sighs> how good are mums? Yeah. Oh, man, like, I mean, I just reflect on my mum. I mean, she's just, she's actually like, I look at her like guru now. She's just so wise. Um, and like, I still need to be mum. I, I, actually, you know what? Even in my 40s. I feel like I need my mum more than ever mm. because I'm like, well, because at our age or at my age, so I don't know how old you are, but... 36. Okay. Uh, you know, we're starting to have to make some bigger decisions, <laughs> you know, and that's when you really need the guidance of your parents. I, you know, I didn't really need it that much when I was younger. Well, I probably did, but now it's like some of the decisions that you make are a lot more consequential and, yeah, that's where I feel like I need my, my mum more than ever. Yeah. She's always there too. Answers the phone. Day or night. She's mm. a, it blows me away. I'm like, oh, well, you answered. I'm like, did I wake you up? Oh, no, honey. I'm like, well, it's midnight there, mum. I know it's midnight in Australia. Oh, I was awake. Oh, yeah. you don't sound awake. Oh, let's talk. You know, like she's just the best. Yeah, yeah bro. Yeah, man. So you, you, you did that. You yeah. did your own jobs. And then like, like at what stage did you sort of decide to maybe go down the academic pathway? I don't remember a specific moment, but I remember trying to have more of a balance of things. I remember well, actively wanting to have a balance. A balance in what way? Of being in Bali as much as possible and connecting with family and culture. Like to go to university? No, as in how to get to that point in time. Like I saw oh, it as like a really... You were thinking that far out? Yeah. Like you would... Okay. I never thought until this point in time, right? But I was thinking how... What field, what profession, what skill sets I have and if I look back at skill sets I go okay I was in the trenches I worked irrigation did some retail work worked for the council doing water mains and in the trenches again it was all leading me to this path of what and I was digging like I remember digging holes in the middle of winter and then thinking okay I can look at it like this is uh, fitness and I can look at it as thinking time too and I remember like there was this one time where this guy told me with a pick to dig through this rock. And I spent a whole day with this pick and my hands digging through this rock. And I was like, one, I was so annoyed at this dude. I'm like, who do you think you are? And I was like, I'm not going to be doing this. I want to do something else. So, okay, let's dig through the rock. I'll show you that I can do it. I'll show you that you can, you know put me in a terrible position and not think about me as a human being. But I'll do it with a smile on my face and I'll use it as thinking time too. And that's when I decided over a long period of time that, okay, higher education is maybe a way towards that. You felt like you were worth more than that? Absolutely. And you felt like you wanted more? I wanted more. I don't know I don't know if it's a worth thing because I don't want to downgrade. Because there are people that... Know, that 
see that as a really good, honest living yeah. and happy and happy with that. Absolutely. They really are. Yeah, yeah. And I would always think, and this is what I've said along the way in my whole life now, is I would learn what not to do. So you can do that. If that's providing for your family, if you have a love and interest in that, sure. But, I mean, if I was doing that, I'd be treating someone else on a better level. Mm. But, yeah, here's the pick and here's that and here's like a bit of lunch or something, you know. It's interesting because I, I mean I had a really similar, a similar sort of um, journey from high school to university. I, I didn't start university until I was 25. Like, so I had this seven-year period, which now that I reflect on is like, I don't, I don't regret that seven years. In, in, in hindsight, it was, the, it was the best thing I ever did. And uh, even though those seven years, I spent a lot of time feeling lost, confused, financially strained, um, doing a lot of shitty jobs, odd jobs, um, you know, lo- lots of labouring work. And I remember I always had this real desire to travel. Even since a little kid, I was like, I want to travel the world. And I'll never forget it. I had this moment. I was working as a labourer for a roofing company and we're doing airport insulation in Sydney where you had to get into roof pitches and stuff the um, ins- in, inside the roof pitch with like insulation bats, you know, and just like lugging these big bags up ladders and it was hot and dirty and there'd be rats in the roof. Like it was, it was gnarly mm. really when I think about it and dangerous. I fell through a ceiling once. Yeah. Didn't get hurt. It was weird. Um, but I remember one day I was like, I was like, I'd worked all day and I was so exhausted and I just was on the roof packing up and I just like stopped and laid on the roof for a minute. And like, I looked at this plane fly over and I just was like, I wonder where that plane, it was like a big jazz, I wonder where that plane's going. Like, and I'd never been on a plane and I was like 20, 22. Mm. I was like, never been on a plane before, you know? And um, I was like, and I just had this moment of like, I want to get on a plane, you know? And I feel like it was that moment where I started to, listen to my heart and follow my dreams and, and what I really wanted to do and wanted to be. And it was that moment that actually I was like, I worked harder and I saved harder and I bought an airline ticket and I actually traveled and I lived overseas yeah. for a bit and it just mm. started that journey of self-realization. And then I was like, Hey, I think I want to be a teacher. I'm going to go back and go to uni. And, and it was just from that one moment of watching this plane fly over me after I'd been in a roof pitch all day, stuffing insulation bats yeah. into the, in between the, um, oh, I'm having a mental blank in between the the rafters. Yeah, know? yeah. So I don't. I I just feel like it's a journey, and I needed to do all those other things. You mm. know, I need to. Yeah, and I also look back at it and go look at the individuals you're with or working with or working for, and like such gifts. You know, these are hard working guys that like are not. You know, I taught, I learned hard work from them. Right, I learned how what it's like to work a whole 12 hours with your bare hands, more than 12 hours, to be covered in mud and go home and literally drop to the ground and fall asleep. That's what I learned. And I learned these guys have done it the most, like most of their lives. They all have families. They're all good people. They all have a life outside of work. But when it's, when it, when it's work, they get into it. Mm. Do you think it's made you a better teacher? Sure. You've got the life experience to yeah. bounce off. You yeah, do. and like what you said, you know, you... you there's always a bit of a means to an end and that was money to travel, to get and, out and see the world. And did you travel? I went over to South America for like six months. I had a really cool wicked experience over there. By yourself? No, with an ex-girlfriend. Shared some pretty cool times over there. Started off in Buenos Aires and went down south through Argentina, 
down to Ushuaia, the southernmost city in the world, and the only regret I have is not going to Antarctica. <sighs> and then, I know, right? Who goes to the southernmost city of the world and doesn't get Antarctica? <laughs> <laughs> and then we went up the other side and up to Chile and Peru and yeah. just like doing five-day treks into Machu Picchu. And, oh. I've always wanted to get down there. I've been to Mexico, yeah. but I've uh, – and I, I really love – I love the Latin culture and uh, I love the Spanish language. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, I've never been that far down. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, man. so then it was coming back and I remember getting back into work – and being, I think I did, went and did a travel course because I was like, how can I get cheap flights to Bali? <laughs> and that was it, right? Yeah. You paid peanuts, but you get like 70 to 80% off flights for you and your family. I was like, oh, sweet. Oh, man, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And then I had a job interview with Garuda. Garuda. No their, way. Yeah. Their, so I you think were, it was their, like you were legit. I legit did this legit travel course, man. <laughs> I did this travel course. I don't know if it was six months or a year with all these chicks. And we're all... <laughs> Like, to be a travel agent. <laughs> to be a travel agent. <laughs> I don't know. What, I was just thinking, oh, like, yeah. how can I get back to Bali for cheap? But I didn't realize that I would only get, like, three or four weeks holidays a year to use that money. And But I was like, also, mum could go back for super cheap, too. That'd be awesome. So I just went and did it and then had an interview. And they were like, yeah, cool. We want you to start. It's in North Sydney somewhere. On, I don't know what it was, like 30K a year or something, plus traveling. And going like, do I really want to do this? And then I think I came across a bridging course into uni because I never had marks to get straight into uni and I would have to do like a six-month bridging course or however long it was. And I was like, job, money, cheap flights. Mm, okay, we'll go and do the teaching thing. So I was never like, oh, I'm a teacher. I'm going to be a teacher. Oh, really? Like you didn't feel like it was a calling? No. So no. Fa- so Peter founds you, brother. That's it. That's what happened. I know, right? Look at, look at this. Because you hear a lot of teachers go, oh, yeah, like, it's a calling and I knew I wanted to do it since I was a little kid. Like, I hear that all the time. I didn't have it either. I actually, I had my teaching moment. I was at a skate park and I was teaching a kid how to drop in on a ramp and he dropped in and I was as, and he was so stoked and I was like as stoked for him and I went, that's so, that's so cool. Mm. Like, I want to have that feeling all the time. Like, I get stoked when other people, when I teach someone something and I didn't know what the hell I was doing with my life. I was like, there it is, boom. Mm. Yeah, I love when it just falls into place. So, so for you, it was like, I want to be a travel agent so I can travel for cheap. And oh, well, I'll be a teacher. <laughs> and I was realising what not to do, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, there you go. But then higher education, like going to these lectures and things, and a lot of them are so super boring and dry and everything. But there was like one guy, I remember, I was like, wow, this guy's a cool thinker. Take away the whole university thing. Take away the whole model and all of that higher tertiary education. But this guy was just a cool thinker. How'd you, how would you rate your university years? Super. Like from every perspective, academically, inspirationally, socially? Uh, socially, it wasn't a huge thing. I never engaged with things socially too much. I was too busy living in this beachfront apartment townhouse thing and just surfing and trying not to go to uni as much as possible, to be honest, mm-hmm. and being really selective on the things that I wanted to go and do and who it was that was leading them and realising there were things I could take from them. And that earlier, like earlier schooling of feeling like I'm struggling back in the early days in uni, I was like, this is sweet. I can do that. I can write this stuff and I can lead this way. Yeah. Um, So it was also like a cool lifestyle. Yeah. 
That is pretty chill, really. Yeah, and also having your own, like having our own little business at the time. I was getting some jewelry made over here in Bali, some resin and shell jewelry from a little oh, yeah. little place in Jimbaran, and importing it, importing it, selling it on the markets on the weekend, nice. having little market stalls and being a little bit self sufficient like that. Entrepreneur. Yeah. Nice man. Just having to go and realizing that you can do those things, and if it's a little, doesn't have to be the be all and end all, but if it's a little side project that. Enables you to have a flight to Bali or mm. a trip back home every time. And do you feel like? Do you still feel like you have that entrepreneurial spirit within? Yeah, I'm already. I really want to do something. You got something. something <laughs> well, I really want to do something together with Mel. Like we used to have this little. We had. We called it my shanty. It started off with um, some hooded towels with a bit of batik print all over them. Right. So we had that going before, and then it got into like homeware stuff and cushion covers and little trinkets and things and. So a lot of the stuff we were getting made from one of my cousins who would sew it all. We would get all the material and source it all and, and um, yeah, get her to make it. And then one of my other cousins was working at Rip Curl out there at Sunset and she would send it through Rip Curl. So postage was cheap. Oh, yeah. That's the big issue. <laughs> and that was like online and also doing markets and stuff too. Nice, man. Just subsidising our income. Yeah. We were talking about this earlier. Um, I've never really been an entrepreneur or a business-minded kind of person. Um, and I don't actually see entrepreneurship as having to be a business, but I do see it as like um, being self-sufficient in various ways, you know. But um, it's only recently I've, I've started to really feel, feel it. Like not because I want to like try and make money and, and rule the world. It's more because I want something that's just all mine and I can control the direction of it and what it looks like mm. and how it goes and no one can take that away from me. It's the thoughts in my mind and my vision out there in the world. And, you know, I said this before, like when you do work for someone else, even if it's a big organisation or a government department, I kind of feel like I'm just supporting someone else's dream and someone else's vision. And it just doesn't sit right with me, a hundred percent, you know. So, yeah, man, I I do I like that you're sort of thinking like that too. And it, like I said, it's just about something that's yours. Yeah, and you can, and, and you can you can mould it however you like, you know. Well, I think when you when you have experiences of working under people, and I really use that term, working under them, right? Of of not really having much control, you learn that pretty quick, eh? But I always admire those like younger people that do like eighteen, nineteen year olds, you know, just kicking it off and like making these connections and just making it happen. Mm. I love that. There's so much to learn from that. Yeah, you seem like a fairly creative guy too. Mm. So like, it's like an opportunity for you to express your creativity and stuff. Yeah, like that. yeah. I don't know. We kind of downplay ourselves, don't we? The creative side of things don't really come when when you're so inundated with everything and family and kids and work and everything but also like working here at the green school it's like you want to be creative you can be creative there's an opportunity there isn't there yeah so you've got two little kids yeah how old are they koa is five and naya will be three next week so you're in the thick of it (sighs) just in the mud pit so newly married yep full-time teacher Mm -hmm. at a at a place that can be very busy um Husband, living in Bali with the challenges that challenges that that poses. How do you how do you manage yourself? How do you manage your time effectively? I remember doing like a study thing when I used to work in Steiner schools on work life balance, 
and coming to um, a little bit of a realisation that everything is life. And I know that's like you can definitely pull things apart and say, oh, this is the work self and this is how we do things at work and how we be at work or this is my time for my family and that. But I don't know, uh, somehow it kind of tricks or fools or persuades my mind to realise that everything is worth it. Mm. It's worth being a good dad. It's worth having time when you get home. And Mel's pretty good at that. She'll kind of go like, okay, you can put your phone away now and check, stop checking your emails and just be with the kids. And there was this one, one particular time not too long ago where she said, where I said, oh, wow, that afternoon was really cool because I got home and everything was really, like, it was sweet. What happened then? She's like, well... Do you want to hear it? <laughs> it's like, well, you weren't in your work frame, right? You weren't on your phone. You weren't planning things. You weren't figuring things out. You were just mm. totally with them. So I get that there is still this thing of work-life balance. But like I said, everything is so amazingly interesting that it's hard not to be involved in it. Or it's hard <laughs> not to really be like, yes, okay, what is it? Stop and have a conversation for half an hour, man. How do you put a price on that? And I always think, like, you know what, if I say no, what's missed out on that? I think saying no is one of the hardest things to do. Mm. I know I struggle with it. Yeah. And I, I, have a, I, have a, I have a different problem. I have too many things I want to, I'm interested in. And yeah, I'm, I'm like you. Like, I have to actually write my, down my priorities, you know, and because uh, otherwise if I don't, I just get too overwhelmed and I get pulled different directions and next thing you know, you fall into a heap Exhausted, stressed, tired, mm. man. Yeah, you gonna say something? Well, I think like, <laughs> I, you know, that question of what do you want to do? I still don't know what I want to do. I love it though. Me either. It's just in, you know, I really don't know what I want to do. Same. And, and we've, I don't know about you, but we, I'm pretty sure we've been both been asked that question our whole life, ever since high school. Am I right? Yeah. And I used to stress about that question. What do you want to do? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. And then it's like, well, I better find something so I can answer the question. Mm. Yeah. And you still don't know? No. Great. But I, I, what I do know is that I just want to be a better person. How? Just by getting to, getting to know yourself better. And I think you find that, well, I've found that in getting to know other people better. Can I ask, why do you feel like you want to be a better person? Like, where is it coming from? Is it just part of your personality, but is it being driven by something else? I think well, there's a few layers to that. One is developing an understanding of learning what not to do. Very, I don't know if this is a bad comment or not, but very rarely have I learned what, what to do or how to be. And I guess if I think hard enough, I will. But I've, the biggest life lessons have come from what not to do and how not to treat people, how not to treat decisions, how not to treat impulses and ideas and creativity of how not to do that. Could I reframe it a little bit for you and say that maybe that you learn from your, you're good at learning from your mistakes? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Same, dude. Made some whoppers. Same. I keep doing them too. I keep making the same mistakes. Do you? you got to learn. <laughs> but I'm more conscious of them. Yeah. And some are big, some are small. Yeah. I yep. just see it, as prog- I see it as progress, not perfection. Yeah. For sure. And, you know, actually hearing one of my mates talk at the wedding, he was like, well, he's got all the time in the world for people and, yeah, learned from his mistakes. 
and really like I've made some mistakes that have hurt some people that are close to me and and like sitting with yourself to feel the weight of that and just sitting with yourself and feeling the weight, right? And then not being like consumed by it, owning it and then coming out and going, you know what? Okay, shed a few skins back then and now it's in you. That's what drives me really. Nice, man. It's nice. Now, question. You did the university thing and then did you gain a teaching position immediately from university or what was what happened after that? Like what was that, what was in those years, those first few years after university? Mm. Where'd that take you? I was lucky enough to fall into, yeah, a few little casual teaching positions. So just to get in the thick of it and to some pretty interesting schools, some rough schools, some really amazing schools and to get a good sense of what it can be like in a different school and a different work life. So that was good for a while, but I also had a connection coming, um, I think it was in like the third or fourth year with the little strange Steiner school down the road, which was this little weird place where you couldn't dress in black apparently. Well, well, for those that don't know, can you like tell us what a Steiner school is? Well, a Steiner Waldorf school comes from Germany. It's just hit the hundred years of being into, uh, into being, if you like, and it's from a philosopher, among other things, Rudolf Steiner. And his idea of education was to bring it to a more personal, developmentally appropriate, um, universal picture of human beings. So not just looking at, uh, looking at the longevity of things and the past, the present and the future capacities of, of people really, which yes. is a really beautiful picture when you think about it. Yeah. And it's all like multimodal, so it's not heavily on really any subject. The arts is actually really beautifully done and music, um, creativity is within everything, appreciation, reverence. So what does a, a, a normal day of teaching look like for you in a Steiner school? Yeah, so what like we used to do, I mean, I, we had a class, I had a, took on a class from grade three and traditionally in Steiner schools you have a, um, when they come into primary years, grade one, They'll take on a class teacher and you'll have them until grade six until they go to middle school or high school. So I took my group on in grade three. This was after about a year and a half of teaching in public schools. And so a typical day would be you come in, we have a thing called morning circle, we do some singing or some movement, rhythmical work, doing times tables or whatever through bean bags and, and artistic waking up the body. And then basically it's there's a lot of things that are that are kind of um, echoed throughout education now of this head, heart and hands of in the morning would be your head subjects, your academic subjects and your heart subjects is you're connecting empathy, um, connecting with your the people and local environment and the hands is when you're artistically, creatively creating something. Right. So when you look at like, when you look at kids and how their day runs, you know, are you going to teach head subjects in the afternoon when, and it's, they're tired and they've had a full day and you're going to ask them to do a, a trigonometry math lesson on something, you know, the morning time is the waking time. So this is kind of going, this is a deeper thing of, of the rhythms and, and this is the depth that, uh, that uh, Steiner mm. education brings. I love it and it seems like it's just so much more in tune with the world and the environment, the natural environment that, that we are a part of yeah 
Is that how another way to describe yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. There's a saying, I think, along many circles of they're so far behind, they're actually in front. So it's 100 years old, right? You can, you can look at it in terms of age like that. It's old. But when you look at it in terms of renewal and rejuvenation and this 100 years of this evolution of fine-tuning things and looking at the greater world, progressive picture and neuroscience and, and encompassing all of those things and in, incorporating it into something new then you have a hundred years of experience. And if you were to meet a hundred-year-old and sit down and have a conversation, then you'd be listening, yeah? What can you learn? Man, that's so cool. I love it. So you you did a stint in Astana School for a few years. Was there for about seven, eight years. Wow. Yeah. And then at what what was the next move from there? The next move was feeling like it's time to move. So feeling a little bit... I don't know, seven-year cycles, right? Like, I think I was 20, 28 into... Thir- got there at 28 into 35, realising that something wasn't really alive, you know? I had all these cool experiences living on the beach and surfing every day and being out in nature and fishing and and getting to know the season so well, this place I was living at and watching the whales and the dolphins and the fish migrate and walking up and getting a bunch of fish and getting long grass and putting it through their gills and carrying it back like a little tribal warrior, you know, just living the life and also feeling like there's got to be more. And then having this relationship along the line I met with Mel and wanting to deepen our relationship and we had Koa and Naya came along and then all of a sudden life just got super busy and it was like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth on the treadmill and we never were in a position to buy a home and that's not the definition or the, 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 the pivotal point of decisions but we kind of had a bit of freedom. We felt like we had this freedom. So it was like what is what else is there? What can we do? And Bali was always calling. Like I wanted to go when I was about 18. I just wanted to go. But for whatever reason it was just never the right time. Yeah. Never felt like the right time. And then you got here. And then we got here. So you then decided to, at what stage did you say, listen, Mel, I want to move to Bali. Are you in? Well, we posed the, I think we posed the idea. I was like, we should just get up and move to Bali, you know, like. And she was up for it? She was up for it. I was, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things where you think, oh, how much do you want it and how much is it going to affect your family and how much are you in it together as a couple, you know. But she was just like, that's what she's like. She's like, yeah, okay, let's try Let's try and actively putting things in place, you know, but it got to a point where things actually became so much at work that I was just like, I just felt like, I actually have never felt this before in my chest. Like I felt my, I couldn't breathe properly. From stress? I, this is what I understand it to be or now. panic attack. I don't know what it was. Anxiety maybe, stress, overload, just, and also... This severe disconnect of who I am and wanted to be and I guess the place I was at. So this question of integrity. And I was like, you know what? It's I, I would have to like extinguish myself and just get in get on the get on the treadmill yeah. or just totally make a stand and you know, trust in the flow of life and go, you know what? Say no. And that's I said what you no. Yeah. So the job was causing you too much stress. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I couldn't breathe probably for a few days. Wow. 
and like I hear it. I hear it more and more. I actually even had um, some ex colleagues from a long time ago I connected with, and uh, they were telling me some stories about experiences that they've had that are similar mm. to that. And uh, these are people that I would have never expected. And uh, it's it's a real eye opener. It's scary because. I mean, it could be me. Mm. It could be any of us because I feel like, especially if you're someone that does a really good job and is thorough, I think you are more, you know, uh, liable. Yeah. So you gotta you got to manage it, don't you? Yeah, because your head's pretty strong, right, that you can convince yourself. And this is what, like on reflection, that's my understanding of it all, that I realised that my head was getting so strong that my body then had to go, you know what, I'm actually stronger, so you need to actually listen to me. My body was just totally giving in where my head was saying, just do it. You can do it. You need to provide for your family. You need to do this. You need to do that. You don't want to have the shame of having to leave somewhere and, and all of that stuff, right? This noise. And then re- like the body going, you know what? Bang. And listening to that. And mm. like what I said it's, earlier to you, you yeah, I came home. Like I literally reposed the ideas. We played with the idea and nothing was definite. But I came home. I walked in the front door and this is literally how it happened. Mel looked at me, didn't say a word, and she said, that's enough. And it was like this weight just went. So in that moment, I realised the decision had just been made, right? So then moving into transitions and and making sure, because I'm a big believer of ending things and big transitions, right? So making sure that things are ended well. So because in a Steiner community, you're really expected to be there for like this key developmental phase of, of a kid's life, right? And the parents put so much what weight pressure, on it. Yeah. yeah. So you become like a second, you spend more time with them than their families. Like it's pretty significant. So ending that relationship in a way became priority. So making sure that things were done well and with the heart, you know, mm. big parent circles, getting people to come together. And then feeling like what not to do. So leadership saying things like, no, you need to do it in this way or you need this time frame. And, and, but me going, you know what, this is my integrity. So behind the scenes making phone calls, flagging it with people, we're going to call a meeting and this is what's going to happen because I don't want you to be ambushed, right, of doing the general human thing because I'm dealing with you and your child's life. Mm. Right? Yeah. You can't underestimate the weight of that. Definitely. So making sure that things ended well. And and they supported you with that. Oh, it was so good, man. Mm. It was so good. Like this whole circle of parents just like sending love and gratitudes and respect. Yeah. And, you know, sitting with, with the principal after it, uh, afterwards and her going, I did not expect that. <laughs> and I was like, well, what did you expect? When it comes from the heart, when you treat people properly, mm. then you can only expect... Love to come back, hopefully. Yeah, man. And for sure there's going to be sadness and grief and all that, but the intention is there, right? The intention is to... You felt the love and appreciation from the families. Yeah. That's great, man. And and I really do believe in ending on a good note as well. Yeah. Um, It's important, man. And uh, you then... That was the catalyst for you, though, to make the transition to Bali. Yeah. And you did it. And we did it. Dude, you did it. And the priority then came upon, you know, doing all the physical stuff of moving and selling and blah, blah, blah. But then making a point of saying, you know what, two months, we are not, I'm not doing anything. I'm not going to look for work. I wanted to be a better dad. I wanted to be a better partner. I wanted to be more solid in our family unit. 
and nothing was going to come in those boundaries of two months of just being together. Mm. <laughs> I thought you wanted to give me a high no, five. No, no. Bl- <laughs> you know, I'll give you a high five anyway. Oh, knuckles, knuckles, knuckles. I was actually blocking the cat the from cat sitting so on my annoying. recorder. Kind of love it. But, dude, way. high five anyway. Go. Yeah, so yep, it going. was just two months of being a family. <laughs> Being a family oh, and just man. living into life, man, and not having a timetable and not being governed by anyone or anything. But you were still doing all the logistics of moving and, and all that. And that's that's big. Yeah. I remember when we did it, it was hard, you know. Like there was a lot to do, but it was so exciting. It's liberating. Like, wow, I'm packing up my life. Yeah. But for me, having two little kids at the time, it was like... Uh, and I'm okay with it now, but I had a lot of moments of like, am I harming my kids by doing this mm. for my selfish needs and wants, you know? Is it selfish needs and wants? Will they be better for it? Like there was so much, like so many unanswered questions and confusion and I just kept, for me personally, and I, I got a feeling you did the same thing, I just kept, as cliche as it sounds, I just kept following on my heart. Mm. Well, what feels right? Does this feel right, you know? And just did it. And, yeah. and I didn't, I really worked on identifying fear and not letting fear make, my decisions. It's a big one. That is a big it's one. A big one. Yeah, absolutely. And you feel the weight of that when you have two little ones looking at you. And I know, man. And all you want to do is wrap them in cotton wool and protect them from everything. Yeah. But they really are protected if they're with you, you know. Yeah. And we had the only expectation we had on this move was that the kids would connect with they like my cousin's kids and have this epic little relationship together, which that hasn't really come into fruition for a number of reasons. And the other side of that was, you know, what do you remember when you were four, two, three, five years old? What do you really remember? So it wasn't the decision, my point is the decision wasn't based upon, we want to give our kids this cultural experience. We want them to feel what it's like to live in Bali and with their family and, and learn Balinese music and language and dance and all of these things that we could have thought, right? But it was all about what is the, what, what would the impact or what would the imprint be on them when they get older, right, to have this experience, just to be immersed in whatever comes from it. So that's what the, that's a lot of where the openness was to it. And they for your kids, they're gonna maybe understand the heritage, you know. And for me, with a my father was born in Malta and I, I got a lot of his um genetic characteristics, you know, darker skin, dark hair, dark eyes. Um and I spent a lot of my younger years being identified as someone who is ethnic. Uh, even though, even though I had no clue about my my background, my my heritage, my my father's side of the family, I really knew nothing about the culture, the country, or anything. So I did. I spent a lot of my life wondering where am I? Okay, well, where am I from? Where where do I fit in aesthetically? Yeah. <laughs> and is that going to be the same as how I feel spiritually and culturally? And it wasn't until I was in my sort of mid twenties that I went to Malta, mm. and. Um, and I went there and I went, hey, a lot of people look – I look similar to these people. Yeah. But then I realised how Australian I was and I was like, well, I'm Australian. And I really just went, hey, I'm Australian. Like I don't identify with this culture at all. Um, and it was it was quite healing, man, I must admit. Mm. Like, because for many years I was like, oh, do I fit here? Is this where I'm meant to be? Right. 
And uh, I'm glad I did it. But your kids, maybe, hopefully, that they'll they'll find that identification and realization. And like my last guest, Kai Paul, he's an interesting one because he was born in Indonesia, mm. Jakarta, to American parents who were actually teachers. You know, and uh, when they had him, they had to make a like they had 48 hours to make a decision if he was going to have an Indonesian passport or an American passport. Right. So they, he got the American passport, you know, because you can't get dual nationality in mm. Indonesia. Mm. And uh, he went back to America when he was like seven or eight, did his schooling there, university, and, and his calling was like, I just want to be back in Indonesia. Like that's where I feel like I fit and that's where I'm settled, you know. Mm. So it's a tricky one. Yeah, it is. But I think it's like I'm just – I'm big on this thought process at the moment about – organizations and like systems and thinking and you want to talk about whole cultural shifts and changes on this huge level but I like I just think it comes back to individuals so if you have a solid understanding of yourself which is like what you're saying about your heritage and realizing that you're identifying with something but also not identifying with something and also realizing you're indifferent to that and I remember identifying with Balinese culture when I was 16 and then having this piece of the puzzle which I didn't which I was searching for right and so it was this moment when my, my cousin sat down next to me and there's like this is the first time mum came back after 10 years and she's there trying to speak Balinese and mouth's not moving properly because she hasn't spoken so long and then my cousin sitting next to me and putting her hand on my lap and saying I'm your cousin realizing oh okay this is my sense of identity so I find that in culture as I find that in my Australian culture and I find that with other people and connecting with other people. So it's this understanding of self which I think is so key and pivotal for change in systems, in thinking, in organisations. So if you have this solid understanding of self... Sorry, I'm, this I'm just like... blanket approach. I'm, blo- it's blo- I'm listening to what you're saying. It's like blowing my mind. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Mm. And I just thought of this um, saying, I, I forget who, some crazy awesome philosopher said this. They said, if you want to change the world, you have to start by changing yourself and mm. within. Yeah. And I just, and that just came to mind as you were saying those things. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much that goes with that, right? Learning from your mistakes, connecting with people, listening to people, speaking up and having the courage to do so. And also realising when you are speaking up too much and kind of just allowing others to take a lead on things. So it's this whole community thing of how you serve the needs of others and how your needs are served as well, you know. I just love being in the flow of that, man. This is what it really inspires me at the moment. I can tell. And... um the word empathy comes to mind when you say those things. I think um, what you're talking about too is like this, and I know I'm personally working on it, is this is trying to put myself in other people's shoes and empathise and, and, and try to see things from their perspective and, and nurture kindness within myself. Mm. My default mechanism personally is to like attack, attack, attack from fear. But um, but yeah, I'm working on it. It's, mm. it's, it's, hard. it's hard. Yeah. But uh, I love that you're. I love that you're. You're talking about that too. Now, so you're in Bali. You've mm. got here. It's amazing. Um, recently, you were asked to do what could be described as like a TED talk um, to international school community 
that was broadcast, you know, live on the web and um, and the audience that was, I guess, I guess the the key audience watching this was quite, I think, for an educator, for me, it would be very intimidating because you're being watched and judged by peers, but also uh, the families and the parents of the students you teach. And I must admit, at the Green School, some of the fa- – well, all of them, but there are some fairly notable families and parents um, within the community. Tell us about your experience doing that. And uh, it was awesome. Mm. Feedback was amazing. I watched it online. Yeah. How would you feel? I felt super nervous and super ready at the same time. I remember doing – like first getting the, the blanket call out. And then that night writing up a whole proposal to do it. And there was a part of me that was like, oh, man, what are you doing? But then I was like, yeah, I'm ready, you know, like, why not? Yes, man. Yes, let's try it. And then a bit of time went past and all of a sudden it came up and like the hecticness and busyness of, of life and totally feeling overwhelmed and not ready and this is huge like emotional psychological fluctuations of like who are you to speak in front of a group of people like what makes you think you're so special what makes you you think your perspective is any different from anyone else's what makes you know all of these questions start to come and you start to ask yourself these things and then actually sitting with it and going you are if not me then who you know, if not now, then when? Like, I would rather stick my head through that waterfall and see what's on the other side than to have someone else go through that waterfall and come back and say, wow, you, should, you have no idea what happened then. So I'd rather be like, you know, stick my head in the waterfall, go through and see that what's on the other side, mm. come out on the other side and be like, wow. Man, like, out of your comfort zone, you know? Yeah. And you, what was, your, what was the basic premise of your talk? Uh, what did I title it? I titled it, um, what was it? Striving? Striving toward, uh, no, it was called the space between. So this space between you and I, what's that like in our relationship as an organiser? So if you bring it from a teacher-student level, what's the space like between us? What's the relationship like um, between student and parents, between colleagues, between leadership and staff? between organisations and leadership and organisation and staff. So, again, like what I'm saying, bringing it back to the individual. If you're not individually doing the work and walking the talk, um, then you're accountable. Mate, you have to walk the walk. You mm. can't just talk the talk. Yeah, and I mean, this is also me making sense of this stage of my life too and going like, yeah, are you? Are you actually did it, walking did it what you're Did it give talking? you some reinforcement? Yeah. On a personal level? Yeah. And... What's been the general feedback from people since then? I think... Mainly positive? Yeah, overwhelmingly positive, yeah. But like I did this whole artistic representation too because I'm also trying to figure it out, right? So I was like inviting people into this creative process that I did and this whole series of diagrams and, and flows and all this sort of stuff. And I think that has a sense of vulnerability, yeah? And I was like, you know what, I'm not an expert on anything. I don't have qualifications to stand up here in front of you. Um, You know, I could say that I'm not experienced enough or, again, this whole self-doubt questions of who am I. 
but also like, you know what, I do actively do the work and I do actively want to share that with other people and I see a need for it. So, yeah, let's do it. And the, the feedback was amazing, you know, like just sparking. On a personal level, do you feel like you've, you've just torn down a, a mental barricade? Yeah, it was this weird. Or crossed a bridge? I do in a way. self personal professional development? Yeah, I do in a way. I think I realise that I, um, despite whatever self-doubt comes or uh, feeling of inadequacy, that innately within each of us we do have it, but we have to kind of really work on it. Mm -hmm. Like I actually sat on the bridge down there and I looked upstream and I was like visualising all all this stuff coming towards you, the water coming towards you, like, are you ready for it? And then sitting on the bridge and going like, okay, in the moment, and then watching it all go past the other way. Like, of really living into that whole experience too. Mm. And you could say, like, I always think, like, oh, is it really that significant? Yeah. Have these words not been said before? Or But I just love in sharing stories together. Mm. And that's really what it was. It was saying, you know what, I'm going to be brave enough and I'm just going to share this part of my story with you. Storytelling is important. Our Indigenous elders... That was how they perpetuated their culture, their practices, their beliefs. Yeah. Before the internet. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> before telephones. Before yeah. any technology. Yeah. Or before any modern digital technology. Greg Stock will yell at me because he thinks we use technology, the word technology wrong. Right. And I was talking to him a lot prior to his talk and, you know, he actually showed me a few drafts of his of his talk and he said, oh, it was losing a bit of sleep over it and it was all he could think about and it was... You know, um, you know, rewriting and rewriting, and oh, it's like it was never perfect, and you know, and he's like, oh, and then he was like, it was dread, like, went through periods of excitement, dread, and I just said to him, man, like, this is a, you're in a beautiful place in that you're in that really uncomfortable space, like that's the that's where that's magic place, like that's the that's where the magic happens. You're in, it's where you want to be, mm. right in your terrifying uncomfortable zone and 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 i'm realizing that that's it's i call it the terrifying happy place (laughs) because it is man it's it's terrifying Mm. and then i mean how did you feel afterwards when you walked off that stage yeah it's pretty epic feeling what was the feeling that overcame you it was like i was probably i don't know overwhelmingly amazing and um i just felt really really good just felt really really good and having you know just being able to share that with such an amazing group of people, it just made me feel like, what was I worried about in the first place? Yeah, because you did it, man. It's rad. Yeah. Now listen, bro, it's been epic. It's been, man, it's been an hour and 22 minutes. Oh, I forgot. Pete, man, God, have you got somewhere to be? Sorry. What are you sorry for? <laughs> Dude, be no, long. Good. There's we're no good. time restrictions. Love it. <laughs> but, um... Like what's next? What's next for you, man? Is there a next, or are you just are you going day by day? Oh, I don't like. I don't even. I don't even know what is next. I really don't know, and I don't have. Like as I said, I don't know what I want to do, and I don't know what we want to do as a family. But I, I was thinking. I've had this feeling recently, of, um, it almost being like, okay, well, you actually need to get super duper in the flow of things and be like right deep in things. Or you just need to leave it. So I don't know, I'm kind of feeling this. I don't know, I'm just kind of working it out. We've only just arrived back from being home after a month and hanging out with family and seeing the kids play with their cousins. 
and direct family because everyone, all the direct family is there. Mm. But having this feeling of like, you know, you can prolong, perhaps you can prolong this too. And I don't know. I use the vortex as this um, analogy, right, of this metaphor. For those that don't know, there's an energy vortex by the river that uh, harnesses the river's flowing energy and converts it into usable energy, correct? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so you so go down of, to that space. So like the picture of it is if you were sitting there, you would look down and, and on the outer, so it's this vortex, right? So the spinning field going in, out in the middle, cat. Send the cat to the vortex. <laughs> <laughs> and it, so when you look at it, like the kids throw leaves down there and the leaves start off on the outside, it goes super slow. And as it gets towards the centre, it kind of speeds up. And there's this point where it actually kind of, you can't, I imagine you wouldn't be able to see down into the vortex, like a little black hole, yeah, the unknown. And then all of a sudden it, you fall down it and then you get spat back out to the river, right? So this is my metaphor for not just this place, but for a lot of those situations, right? All of a sudden you're in the vortex, whatever it is, whatever field you're in or whatever decision you have to make or life transition, you don't actually realise you're in it. Gotcha. You're spinning around, you're just going into the flow and then all of a sudden things start to speed up a bit, right? And you kind of get caught or you catch yourself and you go, I didn't really want to be here and I didn't really think I'd be here. But then it's too late because you're in it and it gets faster and faster and you get to this point of the unknown. You can't actually see what's going to happen. You can't see the other side of that waterfall. But you go in there. And this is this moment of like you don't know what's going to happen in the future. You don't know if it's the right or the wrong decision. And all of a sudden you're down in it and you get spat out back into the flow and you kind of look back on that experience and go like, wow, that was hectic. (laughs) Like the vortex is a place, like the energy of that place is incredible, but also the sound of it, the whole movement of it, it's intense. Intense. So the river swept up in the vortex back out to the river until the next vortex comes. So you think that it, when things are hectic, they do calm down? Yep. Yeah. And go with the flow? I think so. This is, this is my experience, right? This is my experience. So, but I feel like this, this period now is like an extra push of like, you know, you can actually have some element of control whether or not you enter the vortex. You can still have that flow. You can still have that experience. But you also have an opportunity to, to be more conscious of those decisions or to have more control over that. Dude. I feel like that's an epic way to end. I think it's good too. Dude, good, <laughs> man. High five, brother. Oh, man. High five for Dude. you and what you do. I love this. Thank you, brother. And listen, a few things, a bit of housekeeping stuff. The first thing, um, every guest that comes on the show, I, I like to give them a little gift. Um, and you are now a Terrible Happy Talks alumni, which means you've been a guest on the show. And um, you get a sticker. And this sticker is only given to people that have been on the show. So if you see someone else with this sticker, they've either been on the show or they've stolen it off me and, <laughs> and you tell me about that. I'll, I I'll will. Find I'll find them. I'll check the um, list. You know, like I'm I'm, I'm uh, a one-man show and I uh, I do plan, although I do have um, assistance on a couple of episodes with the amazing Christina, the photographer. Mm. Uh, she has come to a few episodes and, and uh, shot them. But uh, 
my one man show, I do I do plan on progressing and to give guests T-shirts and hoodies, which are now available on the Terrible Happy Talks website, which is www.terriblehappytalks.com. Uh, you can go on there. You can read about what I'm about and my mission statement as to why I'm doing the podcast. It has archives for all of the guests that have been on the show and you can actually listen to them via the website or via the various platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Buzzsprout and Stitcher. They seem to be the main ones that you can find the podcast on. And um, write me a review on iTunes, good or bad. I love, uh, love the feedback, uh, as long as it's constructive feedback and because I want to progress and uh, try to produce ad-free content and put it out into the world and spread positivity where I can. So now, there's your sticker, brother. Thank you, brother. And also... Cool. I've asked all guests now to come with a cause or a charity or something you believe in that you would like to advocate for. And mm. so what are you advocating for today, Pete? Well, obviously being from Australia and looking at the significant craziness that is happening over there of just calling out to people to find a cause or a, or a, a form of donation to give back, whether it be a humane purpose on a human level, property, to also um, on with the wildlife as well. So look at charities like if you go to the ABC website, it's about.abc.net.au forward slash appeals. There's a whole bunch of charities you can give to there. And also on a personal level, the Smith family in Australia who, are, um, who give beautiful support to families and kids who um, are needing to get through the school year. So they provide food and clothes and school gear. So they helped our family out when we were, we were young. So thesmithfamily.com.au. Amazing. And those, um, those links will follow Pete's bio um, across all the platforms. And also it will be on the Terrible Happy Talks website page. I have a page that is dropping on Friday with every single guest that's been on has sent me a charity or a cause that they support. And you can actually, it's like a database of ways you can help as supported by past guests. And this, uh, the charities that Pete has just mentioned will also be on that page. It'll be the how can you help page. And uh, for some people who don't know how to help this in this world, well, I just want to give people an opportunity and a place because it can be really overwhelming. So, um, and there is places where we need help. So, yeah, brother. Big props to you and what you do, mate, and how you do it. Knuckles, my friend. And, um... Dude, when the T-shirts come, I actually ordered a few T-shirts. Oh, yeah? And um, they got stuck in customs. No way. And um, I've got to work the process out. I'm a, I'm a rookie with all this stuff, bro. Yeah. But um, how you learn. it's fun though, man. I'm, I'm enjoying every aspect. Yeah. Everything's a learning curve. Everything. Even like today was like, how do I deal with a cat that just wants to sit on my microphones and recorder? There's cat hair everywhere. Dude, I know. <laughs> and I'm not a cat guy. I'm, I'm allergic to the things. Well, you're in the thick of it. Dude, you're in the thick of it. Love it. Love you. Love you. High five, brother. Good on you, brother. All right. Love to you and the fam. Let's go and enjoy the Arvo. Do it. Hey, so before we kick off the podcast, I just want to talk about getting your morning kick in Belmont Coffee. Belmont is owned by skaters, barbers, traders, and musicians. They came together with the idea of creating a co-pilot that's next to you on the late night drives, 
early mornings on the job site, or a midday pick-me-up, ethically sourced beans in a sustainable can, and ready to go when you are, use the code THT to score a discount at belmont.com. That's belmont, B-E-L-L-M-O-T-T dot com.